0: Uh, the, fourth time, the fourth weekend that he would be missing, we might have 20 or 30 people here this Sunday. My wife looked over and said, there's a lot of people out there. <laughs> so that's really great. But we're going to look at the seventh miraculous sign found in John, and that's found in John chapter 11. And to start out, I want you to imagine this story. Uh, a week ago today, you told your kids that you're going to be going to Hershey Park for the first time. And so you get up on Saturday morning, that would be yesterday, and you get the kids in the car, you pack a little uh, picnic um, lunch kind of a thing with some drinks in it and some snacks, and off you go over to Hershey Park. Now, I know you're not allowed to take uh, the drinks and the snacks in, but it's my story, so we're going to go with it. So off you go across the bridge over to Hershey, and as you approach Hershey, you see a big sign up, and the sign says, Hershey Park, with a big arrow pointing to the right. And so... You pull the car over about 30 yards in front of the sign, You shut the car off, turn the radio on, and you pass out the drinks. After about a half an hour, looking at the sign, the drinks are gone, so you pass out the snacks. And after about an hour, the snacks are gone. By an hour and a half, the kids are really getting fussy in the back of the car. And by two hours, you've had enough of this day. You start the car up, you turn the thing around, you turn, and you come back home. And everybody's sort of frustrated. It didn't turn out to be anything like you thought Hershey Park was going to be. Because you'd heard stories about a super-duper looper and a wildcat ride and all these things that you were going to be able to see. And you went to Hershey Park, but nothing was there. What's wrong with this story? Well, everybody knows what's wrong with the story. All you saw was the sign. You never got to Hershey Park. The sign pointed to something beyond itself. It pointed to Hershey Park, in this case... Well, today we're going to look at the seventh miraculous sign found in the book of John. And the sign points to something far beyond itself. The sign points to Christ. And we don't want to miss what the sign is pointing to. So in today's lesson, John describes a miraculous sign. In this case, it's a seventh sign found in John's gospel. Previously, he had said in John chapter 2, regarding turning the water into wine, the first miraculous sign, it says this is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. So as we read through the book of John, we find seven miraculous signs. We said turning the water into wine, we see the raising of the nobleman's son, the healing of the nobleman's son. We see the raising of this man who had been an invalid for 38 years. He comes upon him there by, the, by the, uh, the pool there in Bethesda. We see him feeding the 5,000, then walking on the water. We see him healing the blind man who had been blind from birth. And finally we come to this seventh sign, the last sign. And if numerology means anything, well, seventh is the number of completions. So this is an incredible, miraculous sign. It's the last one that John writes about. It says at the end of his gospel there in John 21, he said that Jesus did many other things. I suppose he said, if I wrote all of them down, all the books in all the world could not contain all the things that could be written about Jesus. And it is incredible, you think he was with him for those three and a half years, John was, and he could have written tons of things. When we read about the different signs, one of the signs, the, the, uh, the, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, we find that in all four Gospels, and, but only one of the Gospels, Luke, has this little sidebar mention about that miracle, and it says in Luke that, by the way, he also healed all the people that were brought to him that day. So there were 5,000 men plus women that'd be another 5,000 maybe plus children that'd be another 5 or 10,000 so we could have up to 20,000 people and just Luke just mentions a little sidebar of all the people that he healed that day. Why well, John could have written for hours and days about all the different people just in that one miracle that happened. But John is focused. He wants us to just look at these seven miraculous signs. And he has a purpose when he gives us the story of this particular miracle. And what I like about the book of John, I love the book of John, I like it because he tells it straight. He gives us exactly why he wrote the book of John in the book of John. Did you ever have an English lit class class? When you were maybe in college, it was one of those gen ed classes. I remember I had one at Dickinson College about 100 years ago when I went there before there was electricity and running water. And they they required you to take an English comp and an English lit class. And in the English lit class, you had to read all these different stories from all these different authors. And then you had to decide what it was that the author was trying to say in his story. Well, I was a science major, and I just survived getting through there and got a B in the class. But people would sit around, and they'd come up with all these theories of why they think an author wrote a story. You know, Ernest Hemingway's uh, the, the, the Old Man in the Sea, and there was supposed to be all kinds of metaphors and, and theories about the fish, and he's somehow bonded to this fish, and he's out there fighting nature and all this. To me, it was just a guy that went for a for a boating ride, and he, got, he caught this really big fish, got it up next to the boat. By the time he got the fish next to the shore, the shark had eaten the, the fish, and it was sort of a sad little story. But if I would have written that down, believe me, I would have got an F in that class. Well, I would have loved to have had the book of John as the assigned reading with the question, what did John write the book of John for? Because if you turn with me to, and there's your blank, John 20, 30, and 31, It says very clearly why he wrote the book of John, and we don't want to miss this as we look at this miraculous sign. Because in John 20, 30 and 31, it says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. I'm only going to tell you about seven of them, John says. But these are written, these seven, they're written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. That's his purpose, that we would see who Jesus is, that he is far more than a man, that he is in fact the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, the anointed one, and he is the one sent from God. If we believe that, we will have life. And it's not just happy life on this earth, not at all. It's eternal life. It's a spiritual existence that will go on forever in the presence of God. And he promises that, and that's why he wrote this, So therefore, as we enter into this study, as we look at the miracle of the raising of Lazarus, don't miss what the sign is pointing to, because it's pointing to something far beyond itself. The miracle is wonderful. It's one of the most incredible miracles found anywhere in the Gospels, but it points to something beyond itself. It points to Christ, and it points to his glory. So if you turn with me now to John chapter 11, we're going to start out. It says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, The sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So, what is this glory? What is this business about God's glory? You know, that's a very important thing here, obviously, in this gospel. And glory, according to Webster, is distinguished as a quality or asset, something marked by beauty or splendor. In Exodus chapter 33, we see a picture of Moses up on the mountain, there to get the Ten Commandments, there having fellowship with God, and he asks God to show him something. You remember the story. He says, now show me your glory. And what does God do in order to show him his glory? Remember, he hides him in the cleft of the rock, and he passes by in front of him, and he shows him his glory. And what he says and what he does is a description of how he shows him his glory. He says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. His goodness is his glory. It's one of his attributes. Then he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And so mercy is an attribute of God and describes his glory. And it says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one looks upon the face of God and lives. And then he did that. And it says in the next chapter, it says, he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness and maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So we see him, he is the judge, he is compassionate, he is gracious, he is good. It describes his attributes. And today, as we see the glory of God in the raising of Lazarus, we're going to see more of the attributes of God. We're going to see his resurrection power, and we're going to see his life-giving power. And those are attributes of God. Now, I want you to remember something. You cannot glorify God apart from glorifying the Son of God. I don't want you ever to forget that. You cannot glorify God apart from glorifying the Son of God. Turn with me back just a couple pages in your Bible to John chapter 5. And there in John chapter 5, verse 23, Jesus is speaking. In verse 23, he says this. Let's find it. John chapter 5. Go back one more page there. Now I found it. Okay, in 23, he says this. Verse 22. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You cannot honor the Father unless you honor the Son. So in this section in John chapter 11, you go back to John 11 now, it says, when he heard this in verse 4, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death, nor is for God's glory, so that God's Son will be glorified through it. You cannot honor the Father unless you honor the Son. When a Jehovah's Witness is standing at your door, and he's telling you, as one did a number of years ago to me that, oh, I believe in Jesus. I said, you don't believe in the same Jesus that I believe in. Because the Jesus I believe is deity. He is God. He is not a created being created by Father Jehovah sometime later in in existence and he doesn't have an eternal existence. He's not the self existent one. He's some created being. You're saying you believe in Jesus, you don't believe the same Jesus that I believe in. You believe that that uh, Jesus was created by the Father, and then Lucifer was created. They're brothers. Why, that's not the same Jesus I believe. You cannot honor the Father unless you honor the Son. And the two are tied together, and that's what he's saying. This is for God's glory, and how is God going to be glorified? Why, because the Son of God is going to be glorified through this. So don't miss what the sign is pointing at. It's pointing at the glory of of Christ, the attribute of the Godhead here that you see. and He is resurrection, and he is life. Well, we're going to come to four different things here. The setting, we're going to look at the setting, the situation, the sorrow, and the sign. And the setting is interesting. There's two locations described here, Perea and Bethany. And if we have that picture that little picture, you can put that up. It just shows you kind of a map of Israel. I got this out of actually one of the books here in our library. And it's not a real good picture, but you can kind of see. I'm going to do something I always wanted to do here. I'm going to turn this little thing on here. And I'm going to show you a little pointer. Isn't that great? There's Jerusalem. I always wanted to do this. I got this thing. It's, it's, it charges my phone, and it also has a little pointer in it. And so here is Jerusalem. And right outside of Jerusalem is Bethany. See Bethany right here? Well, this is a picture of Judea, a picture of Perea. And then if you went up further, and we can't really see that on this map, but you go up through uh, Samaria, and then you go up to Galilee, where the Sea of Galilee is. And so the Sea of Galilee uh, runs, the, the Jordan River runs all the way down to the Dead Sea. And so we have this location near Jerusalem, which is Bethany. That's going to be the town of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And you can turn the lights back on now that i got a chance to use my little pointer. Um uh, but, um, and that's the one location described in this, but there, there's also Perea, and that's there to the north and, and east, and that's where Jesus is. So there's two different locations described in this, and we know that because in John chapter 10, something happened in the ministry of Christ, and that was this. He says in verse 31 in John chapter 10, Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. You see, they understood what Jesus was claiming. The JWs don't understand that, that he claimed to be God, but they understood They understood the context of the time. So they took up stones to kill him, and then it says a little later on in that same chapter, it says, again, they tried to seize him, But he escaped their grasp, in verse 39, and then it says, Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days, and here he stayed, and many people came to him. So we have Jesus is ministering in Perea, across the Jordan. And how do we know where that is? We don't know the exact location, but if you go back in John chapter 1, we have the place where John was baptizing, and it says... In verse 28 of John chapter 1, this all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now you can be really confused. There's two Bethanies here. we got Bethany on the other side of Jordan in Perea, and we got Bethany near Jerusalem, two miles from Jerusalem. That's where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus is. And that's why John starts out and he says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany. That's the village of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That's that Bethany. It's different than the Bethany on the other side of Jordan. That's where Jesus is. So there's a distance between where Jesus is and where Lazarus is. That's going to come up very shortly in this story because we have a messenger now. And this messenger has a message. He is told by Mary and Martha, go and find Jesus there at Bethany on the other side of Jordan and tell him the one you love is sick. And you notice in your outline, I have the one you is the blank there. She doesn't say the one who really loves you is sick. You see, that would be, blast, that would be uh, blackmail. That would be bribery. You know, the one that really loves you, you should do something about that. No, she says the one you love is sick. Listen, if Christ operated on my life and in your life based on our love for him, we would all be in trouble. Because we're all two-faced, we're all shallow, we're all earthbound and inconsistent and fickle and self-centered, and that's on a good day. But Jesus operates on our life based on his love for us. The one you love is sick, she says. So we have Romans 8, 8.35 which says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Jerry brought that out a few weeks ago. And then it ends there in Romans 8, 39. I'm convinced that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. The one you love is sick. So the emphasis is on Christ's love. Well, why do we find sickness, even death, then, among God's creation? That's a question you could could bring about because here's Lazarus sick. Well, we know ultimately it's a result of the fall. In Genesis 3, we see the fall of man. They were destined for eternity, living in the garden, walking with God in the cool of the day. They had perfect fellowship, and then sin came in. And there was the fall of man, and he was put out of the garden. He no longer had access to that tree of life. And the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And the day he ate of it, spiritually, he was separated from God immediately. He hid. And physically, he began to die. And that march of death has occurred to mankind ever since. So we know that ultimately, it's the result of the fall. But sometimes, it is the result of sin. How do we know that sometimes sickness, even death, is the result of sin. Well, there in the book of John, we have the story of the invalid who had been an invalid for 38 years. Can you imagine being a cripple? You cannot get up for 38 years, and Jesus hears of this man. He comes up, comes to him, and he says to him, do you want to get better? Do you want to get better? And he goes through this whole story about, well, yes, I want to get better. Of course I want to get better, but every time the pool moves... Which, and there was this superstition, this belief that an angel would come down to the pool, and when an angel would come into the pool and would stir the water, if the first man in the pool got healed. Problem is, I'm an invalid. I can't move. And every time it, it stirs, well, I'm never the first one in the pool. So I can't get better. And Jesus said, rise, take up your mat, and walk. And he stood. Can you imagine what that was like? After 38 years not being able to move at all? having to be carried down to this pool every day for 38 years. And now he not only can get up, he can get up, he can reach down, he can roll up his mat, he can put it on his shoulder, and he's walking around with his mat on his shoulder. Can you picture him? And he's got that bounce in his step. He doesn't have to go through physical therapy, none of that. His his limbs are perfectly healed. And what happened to the sign here to the Jews? You know what they saw? They saw. It's like, it's like the people that pulled over at Hershey Park and they're looking at the sign. They can't see what the sign is really pointing to. All they could see was that mat. He's carrying a mat. And he's carrying a mat on the Sabbath. And you're carrying a burden on the Sabbath. You're doing work on the Sabbath day. That's all they could see. They couldn't see the fact this man had been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus said to him, rise, take up your mat and walk. Well, he's not going to put that mat down. Who told you to carry that mat? <laughs> They're all excited about the mat. He said, this man told me, he told me the same one that told me to rise up and walk, he said, carry that mat, take that mat. So I'm carrying my mat, man. I got my little five-ounce mat. That wasn't working on the Sabbath. He wasn't, he wasn't earning an income and, and, and doing production for some kind of mercenary thing. Not, he wasn't breaking the Sabbath law at all. He was breaking the, the law that they had added to the Sabbath law, but then Jesus comes on him later on. He, see, he meets up with this, the same one a little later on. And he says something very interesting to him there in John chapter 5. He says, Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, what does that tell us? Do you think that man knew what he was talking about? He didn't go into any detail about what specific sin that was going on, maybe in his heart I'm sure that man knew what it was. For 38 years, he'd been holding on to. It was, it was maybe lust, maybe it was selfishness, maybe it was greed. I don't know. But Jesus knew. And he guaranteed him something. If you keep doing what you've been doing for 38 years, he said to him, do you want to get better? Something worse is going to happen to you. So sometimes sickness... 38 years an invalid is brought about by sin. We know in the in the case of 1 Corinthians 11:27 to 30 Paul warns us not to take communion in an unworthy manner because some are sickly among you who have done this and some even sleep some are dead. So we know that sin sometimes brings about sickness. But it's not always that case. Sometimes it has nothing to do with sin. Number 3 here, Job, God says there's none like him in all the earth. He's blameless. He's upright, blameless, not sinless, but no unconfessed sin in his life that he hasn't dealt with, turned from, made sacrifice for, pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ one day. He's an upright man and he fears God. And that was God's opinion of him. There's none like him in all the earth. Yet, there he is. His whole family's gone now, dead, except for his wife. He's laying there and he's got boils all over his body and he's scraping them off there. He is definitely sick. And yet, it was in God's purpose for his life. We certainly know that about the blind man. They came upon this blind man and they, and they said, they're outside the temple. And he was begging and he said, uh, the disciples said, Why is he blind? Is he blind because his parents sinned or because he had sinned? And there was this belief that you could sit in the womb. The fetus could sit in the womb, and if he did, then he would be born with some kind of malady. Can you imagine what that would be like? The guilt on the parents or on the individual? That they would be born with... Think of kids born with Down syndrome or kids born with some kind of a malady, scoliosis, whatever it is. And the parents, the Jewish culture said... Why, it was the result of either the parent's sin or the, the child's sin in the womb. Jesus said, neither. This has come upon him so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So there was a purpose. It was God's purpose. It had nothing to do with sin at all in this case. And so we know that sometimes it has nothing to do with sin. And in the case of Lazarus, we see in John chapter 11, verse 4, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory. The reason Lazarus was sick unto death and ultimately died was for God's glory. Well, so we come to verse 5 through 7. It says here, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back through Judea. But, Rabbi, they said a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there. So his love is emphasized in this section. Skip this thought, and you may wonder about his concern. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. God's timing is what the outline blank is here. Not his mother's timing there in John chapter 2. My time has not yet come. Not his brother's they there in John chapter 7. They wanted him to go down to the temple. Tell him who you were. They didn't even really believe. They didn't believe yet that he was the son of God. So go down and make yourself public. He said, for you, any time is right. For me, it is not yet the right time. He would have a time when he would publicly enter Jerusalem. That would be at Palm Sunday, but it was not yet that time, so he went secretly. And yet he did go, but it wasn't according to their time. Remember, Lazarus is already dead. Now, keep this in mind because there's commentaries that go in back and forth about what Martha is going to say when she comes out to him. And some think it's a rebuke, but it is, I don't believe it's a rebuke at all. When she comes out and she said, if you would have only been here, my brother would be still alive. Remember, if Jesus waits two days, and he arrives then, and Lazarus has been dead four days, if he hadn't waited the two days, how many days would Lazarus still be dead? This is not a hard math problem here. He still would have been dead two days. There's a distance between where Lazarus is, dead now, and Jesus and the messenger, who probably turned right around, having been given that message by Jesus, this sickness will not end in death, but is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified. By he turns around and he goes back. Can you imagine what he does now? He goes and he approaches Mary and Martha, and he said, they said, they said did, you, did you get the message to, to, uh, to Jesus? Yes, I did. And what did he say? And, and she'd give the answer, and then he'd say, how's Lazarus? And said, well, he's been dead two days. So obviously, I don't believe she's out there saying, if you'd have only been here, my brother would have died. Why weren't you here? I sent the message. You waited two more days. It was already, in her mind, too late. It was hopeless, the circumstances, the situation. When you're outlined, verses 11 to 4, Lazarus has fallen asleep. He describes, as he says, in verse 11, he says, he went on to say, he went on after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. They didn't want to go down to, to Jerusalem. Jesus almost got stoned there just a few days before, just a, a weeks before, and now you want to go back? Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep, so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so then they go. It says on his arrival, verse 17, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Well, in your outline here, Lazarus has fallen asleep. Why does God often call death for the believer sleep? In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 14, three times death is referred to as sleep. Christ underwent the full horror of death. What is death? It's separation, physical and spiritual. And he underwent the full horror of separation there on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Separation from the Father, so that we might be absent from the body and present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 8. Remember, we are not our body. Our soul, our spirit, immediately absent from the body, present with the Lord, according to the scriptures in 2 Corinthians. So one day we're going to be joined again with our resurrected body when Christ calls it from sleep. But for the believer, death has no sting. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15 54 to 57. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard that that story already about the father and the, the little girl that are in the car together, and a, a bee flies in the window, and the father swings at it, and he catches it for a second, and he opens his hand, and the bee flies out, and the little kid is just freaking out because there's this bee flying around the car. I get like that myself. And when you understand the story here, it's because the the little girl is deathly allergic to bee sting and if she gets it she's she could have an anaphylactic shock and die and he looks over at her and he holds out her his hand and he says look i've already got the stinger there's nothing to be worried about death where is your sting oh grave where is your victory thanks be to god he says who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ he's already removed the stinger it's no longer separation it's absent from the body present with the lord We can go down through the valley of the shadow of death and we will never be alone because he went through the valley of the shadow of death alone in our stead, in our place, on the cross. So we can say, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. We can have total confidence in that. But for the unbeliever, death ends in separation and condemnation. We love John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John 3.18 says, Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. They're already in spiritual separation. Those are hard words. Well, we, we come from the setting now to the situation. Lazarus has been dead for four days, and Jesus arrives to this funeral in verse 17. Do you know he ended every funeral he ever attended? Death cannot exist in the presence of Jesus Christ. There's the widow of Nain's son. He's being carried out. She's weeping. It's her only hope in life. She has a son, and now he's dead. And he stops the funeral procession and heals the widow of Nain's son. And then there's Jairus' daughter, and he walks in. And, and they're actually kind of laughing, the people there, because why would you even bother going in to see Jairus' daughter? She's already dead. And he goes in, and she comes out alive. And when he died on the cross, remember, he died first. Those thieves on either side of him, they died after him. Remember when the the centurion got to him to break his legs, that he would suffocate and die, and they could get them all off the cross before the Sabbath? He found that Jesus was already dead. See, into thy hands I commend my spirit. It was after he died that the, that the, the thief on either side died. Well, Jesus arrives at this funeral. Now, verse 25 and 26. We got Martha coming out, and she says, This whole thing about, Lord, if you'd have only been here, my brother would not have died. I think she's really saying to him, you see her little bit of faith. It wouldn't have mattered whether he had tuberculosis, whether he would have had hepatitis, whether he had had severe liver disease, heart disorder, he had pancreatic cancer. It doesn't matter if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But the circumstances were such that you were in Perea and we were here in Bethany and you weren't here. And so he did die. We prayed. We all prayed. But you see, God doesn't always hear our prayers, Mary and Martha were thinking, when they went out to see him. But if you would have been here and you would have prayed, he always hears you. Even now he hears your prayer. If someone else is in our presence that has a sickness unto death and you prayed for them, God would hear you because God always hears you. I think that's what she's saying. She's saddened, disheartened. shes It's hopeless. It's a circumstance that she can't do anything about. She understood that Jesus would have to be there because they were trying to stone him. They were trying to seize him. And so she wasn't mad at him for being there. But if he'd only been here, she knew that Jesus loved Lazarus. But it was too late now. What he says to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He has spoken before of some of his attributes. He said, I'm the light of the world, and then he healed this blind man. He said, I'm the bread of life, and he fed 5,000. He said, I'm the good shepherd. Each time he points to something and then He says something, and then you see this incredible action that he takes. And in this case, he says, I am the resurrection. I am, ego emi, the name of God, spoken from the burning bush. Who is it that I should tell the nation of Israel sent me? Tell them my name. This is my memorial name. This is the name I will be remembered for all generations. Tell them I am sent you. And that's what he says here. It's the same thing when he said, before Abraham was... I am. And they took up stones at that time to kill him because he named the name of God. You say they understood the context. The Jehovah's Witnesses missed that. When I, when I asked the Jehovah's Witness that one time when he came to my door, I said, what, what, was, what was Doubting Thomas saying then when he looked at Jesus after he had said, I won't believe that he is resurrected, that he has come back from the dead, unless I put my hand in his side, unless I put my hand in, and now Jesus appears to him, and he says to him, my Lord and my God, what was he saying? And the two of them were there, and and he he said, I'm I'm not really sure. I'll have to get back to you on that. And he actually came back a couple days later. He said he talked to one of the elders of his church, and he said, he said, what he said was this my lord looking at jesus and then he looked to heavens above and he said and my god talk about taking something out of context talk about beating a round peg into a square hole and just keep beating it and try to try to it's, it's going to distort the whole it's not the the jews understood the context when he said before abraham was i am and they took up stones right away because that was blasphemy he was claiming to be god now that's that's the glory that we want to see in this miracle. What does believe mean? Martha's thinking about an event I have in your outline here. She's thinking about Psalm 16. She's thinking about Job 19. In my flesh, I will see God, he says, even though I'm dead and I've been in the grave for many years. In my flesh, I will see God. She believed that there was going to be a future resurrection, She had her theology right. Remember, there was this argument between the the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees said there's going to be a resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. And they they had this whole question that they tried to trick Jesus with. Uh, A woman marries a man, and then he dies, and she marries his brother, and he dies, and she goes through seven men, which one she's going to be when she's in heaven. He said there's no marriage in heaven. And he said besides that, he said, God is the God of the living and not of the dead. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they're alive right now. He's not, they're, not, they're not dead. They're with him right now. So she had her theology right, but her eyes are not focused on him. Jesus says, look at me, a person. Not I did resurrect or I will resurrect, not past or future, but present tense, I am. He is the ever-present resurrection and life. Salvation does not come in a system or a code or a religion It comes in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ, who is resurrection and life. What does it mean to believe? John Payton was a a missionary to the South Sea Islands, and he was translating the Bible. And he came to this word in the translation of the Bible, and there was no word in the South Sea Islander's tongue for the word believe. Believe. That's a pretty important word. For months, he was racking his brain on how to translate the word believe. One day when he was in a study, one of his friends, a native, came running in from running some distance and he ran into the study and he flopped down on the chair. He just stretched out on the chair. And he said, that's it. That's the word for believe that I've been looking for. And in the translation to the South Sea Islanders, the word means to stretch yourself out upon, to totally commit yourself to, to totally trust upon, to lower your weight completely upon. It's like when you came in this morning, when you didn't sit the chair and, and look at it and check out the legs and turn it upside down. You just sat down on it. You totally trusted upon the chair. It's saying, Lord, I totally trust you, and I put all my faith in you, it better hold, because I'm not trusting any of my own works to get me to heaven. It's going to be 100% you, Lord, and none of me. When I stand before the Father, I will never say, didn't you and I do a good job getting me here? It will all be because of the finished work of Christ and what he did on the cross. Believe his claims, believe his words, to the woman at the well, she says, they go through this discourse. He says to her, give me water. And she says, you know, you'd ask of me to give you water. And he, he said, well, if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, you'd ask of him, he'd give you living water. And as, as they go through that discourse, and she says, well, I'd like some of this living water. He says, well, go tell your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He said, well, you've spoken truly because you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And she recognizes this one is someone sent from God. This is a prophet. And as we we get further in that conversation, the light starts to go on in her heart, and she says, I know one day Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And he said, I who speak unto you am he. Do you believe that, that he is the Messiah? To the blind man, he says, he goes through this whole thing with his belief, keeps getting strengthened and strengthened, and he says, he says what, do you want to follow him too? Do you want to be a follower like, like I am now? Because no one, he said, we know this man is sent from God because no one has ever opened the eyes of a blind man ever before, in the history of time. Can you imagine maybe when he was 12 years old or 13 years old and, and he would be going through his bar mitzvah, his, his, his growing and in, in understanding of the scriptures, and he'd recognize this whole thing about, did I sin in the womb or did my parents sin? And, and I've got this blindness. And, and so I talked to his parents, and he'd ask his parents, when was there ever a time ever that a blind person who was born blind would ever receive their sight? And the parents, they they'd probably look at each other and sadly answer him. Or maybe they'd say, well, we'll go back and we'll ask the rabbi. And then we go ask the rabbi and come back from synagogue and say, well, we ask him. And there's never been a time, ever, in the history of time, that a blind man received his sight. And now this one comes upon him and he says, and he puts the mud on his eyes and he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he came back seeing. He said, I know this one is sent from God. He's ready to attach his faith into anything and anyone that this one who has clearly been sent from God tells him. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? And he says, you are now speaking with him. In fact, he is the one that you see right now with your eyes. And it says, if you go back with me just just one chapter there, John chapter 9, it's incredible what happens next. It says in 9 38, Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. You see, he saw the sign, he saw past the sign to what the sign was pointing at. He saw the Christ. And he worshipped him, the Son of Man, this one that Daniel 7 talks about, this one who's brought in before the ancient of days and has given all glory and power and honor, and all nations will worship him. That's the Son of Man that he believes in. It says, and he worshipped him. And you know what happens next? You don't see Jesus saying, oh, don't worship me. You see that? It says, in fact, he says, for judgment I have come into the world. You see, over in Revelation... The book of Revelation, chapter 19, there's an interesting thing going on when John's on the Isle of Patmos and he's getting this revelation and it says there, then the angel said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the two words of God. And John, who hears this from this angel, says, at this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. But you don't see Jesus doing that. Because he is God, because he is the son of God. And this happened to Lazarus so that God would be glorified because the son of God was going to be glorified through this. So believe his words. To Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life and believe his works. Believe in me for my very work's sake. Take it down a notch, he says there in in John chapter 14, verse 11. If you don't believe the things I say, at least believe in me for the miracle's sake. Well, verse 33 to 35, we're coming closer to the actual event now. I've got to get over in the right chapter. I'm in John chapter 10. It says there, when Jesus saw her weeping, now this is Mary, and the Jews who had come along with her, they had followed her out thinking that she was going to the tomb. That's what normally happened for about a week. There'd be mourners and they'd just follow the women around, go down to the tomb. There was this thing about, well, Eve sinned first in the garden, so she should be the one leading the procession. So the women lead the procession down to the tomb over and over again. They would do that for a week. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her, also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And there Jesus wept. I have in your outline, Behold the Son of Man, the man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. See his humility. And this is a book written by John to demonstrate the deity of Christ. If this was a false book, John would never have included this demonstration of the humanity of Christ. There he is weeping, tears coming down his face. He was troubled. It's the shortest verse in the New Testament. He wept. Swindoll says it's the deepest verse in the book of John. Because three times in the Gospels we see Jesus weeping. Here at the tomb of Lazarus, there outside of the city of Jerusalem, How often would I have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks to her? But you would not because of sin. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Hebrews talks about the fact in Hebrews 5 that there he wept because he was about to become sin for us who knew no sin. In each case, it is the result of sin that he weeps over. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus, yet he allows himself to be troubled Why? Because he is a sympathetic savior. He's indignant over sin. Don't miss the fact that this miracle cost him something. He would not, and I I omitted the word not there, he would not raise Lazarus until he entered into their suffering and the awfulness of sin. It's a difficult word to translate this word, this business about he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. It says he became deeply agitated, angered, literally to snort with indignation. It's like a shudder. It's what a horse does, they say, even in a translation, when they kind of shudder. The word has a certain sternness, almost anger in it. Translations could include Jesus was moved to anger in his spirit, or he gave way to such distress of spirit as made his body tremble. Listen, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, what is death? If you look it up, I'll read it to you. It says, For he, that is Christ, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is the enemy. So death, Tasker says, to bring about his destruction, that is death. The destruction of death was the chief purpose for which the Son of God entered into the human arena and it's interesting, B.B. Warfield comments on this passage, It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death him who has the power of death, and whom, has come, whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage as he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words, as a champion who prepares for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. Not in cold, unconcern, Not in apathy. That was the term that the Greeks used for their gods. They were apathetic. and That's where we get our word for apathetic. This is, a, this is the Son of God who enters into the grief of those around him. He understands their grief. So Calvin says... In flaming wrath against the foe, Jesus smites on our behalf. He approaches this tomb, and he says, roll back the stone. Where have they laid him? Lazarus, come forth. Well, you can go to your second page now. Seeing is not always believing, but believing is always seeing. He says to Martha, you see this once more he's deeply moved verse 38 he came to the tomb it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance it was hewn out of a rock or it would be a natural cave and inside there would be these like pallets where they carved shells in the inside of that cave and lazarus would have been wrapped his individual legs wrapped his arms wrapped he'd had this thing around his face that was like the sweat uh, uh, towel around his face and they'd have the the spices sprinkled in he was laid out in there And it says there, take away the stone, he says. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Hendrickson said it is not at all advisable or necessary to translate the original as if it read, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. By now there is an odor. It's four days. He's been dead for, and this is not a hermetically sealed tomb. It's just a stone rolled in front of the opening. By now, there is an odor. What happens physically at death? Let's think about that. He's four days dead. The heart stops beating. Oxygen stops flowing to the tissues of the brain, the muscles, the lungs. The muscles lose their energy stores. They shorten. They no longer accept electrical impulses. They begin accumulating lactic acid buildup and they coagulate, the protoplasm coagulates and become stiff. It's a state of muscle stiffness known as rigor mortis. We know what that's about. In time, the cell walls break down or lice, causing fluid loss and escape of bodily fluids. Putrefaction sets in, whereby bacteria bring about decomposition and decay of the human tissues, and they releasing sodium nitrate, calcium phosphate, and sodium chloride. A good forensic specialist can come upon a body, a stiff. And they can tell how long it's been dead. Based on the degree of rigor mortis and decomposition. Decomposition of proteins release hydrogen sulfide. That's that sulfur smell. And ammonia. That's the ammonia smell. By now he stinketh. This is a clear demonstration of the power of God going on here because this thing is not hermetically sealed and her eyes are on the corpse right now. Her eyes are not on Jesus when he says, roll back the stone. Her eyes are on, and she's in terror now thinking, Jesus has come down, and he wasn't there when Lazarus died. And so he wants to get a last look at Lazarus. He wants to go in the tomb and take a look at him. And Jesus says that so he rebukes her. He really says, did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? It's interesting to say, he doesn't say, if you believe, I'll do the miracle. He's already planned on doing the miracle. This is going to happen whether or not she believes or not. But if her eyes are fixed on the corpse, when this is all over, all she's going to see is living Lazarus. She's not going to see what the sign was pointing. It's like she pulled over at her, she, the sign and didn't see what it was pointing to. It's going to point to the glory of God. He has the power of resurrection and life in him because he is the son of God. There was an ancient tradition around at that time And the tradition was that when an individual died, the spirit exited the body and hovered over the body for some three days. And after three days, the face became so disfigured that the spirit could no longer recognize the body, and so it left. Maybe that's part of the reason why he waited two more days so that when he arrived, he would be there, he would be dead four days. By now, it was hopeless, except this is the Son of God who created all things by the power of his word. There's no problem recreating those tissues, that blood moving again, that oxygen in the blood for Lazarus. It's not a problem at all to him. It's already a done deal in his mind. So the miracle is not conditioned on her faith, but for Martha to see the glory of God, she had to have her faith in Christ. Well, behold the Son of God as we come to the actual event So they took away the stone. Can you imagine those guys? Maybe it was the disciples. They're looking back and forth between this discourse between Martha and Jesus, and then they roll back the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. See, I and the Father are one. He knows the will of the Father. He knows the will of God because he is God. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, this is the, the epic moment here. There's no turning back at this point. It's either going to happen or everything is lost and all his claims are gone. Well, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen. He wasn't sitting in there for a couple days, kind of feeling bad. The, the wrapping's already still on him. He gets right up out of the tomb, right up off the pallet, and he walks out. He's stumbling out into the, into the light. And he still has this facial thing on him. He's probably blinking underneath the, 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 uh, the cloth. Imagine those guys that rolled back the stone, seeing him walking out. Well, there he was. It said, The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said, to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Well, what power? Behold the Son of God. Revelations 1, 17 and 18 says, When I saw him, I felt his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. I hold the keys of death in the grave. He still holds those keys. They're his. Can you imagine what would have happened if the one who created all things by the very power of his word would have only said, come forth. All the graves would have opened everywhere. You know, that's going to happen one day. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18, it says it's going to come back with a loud command. What's that command going to be? Do you ever wonder? Is he going to say, John, come forth? Come forth. Is he going to say, Jim, come forth? Or maybe he's just going to say, come forth. Because my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. And everyone will just come out of the grave, all his sheep, at one time, because of his power. Well, did you see it? Did you see the glory? Where was your focus? Did you see the sign? Was your focus on the corpse, like Mary? was your focus on the Roman government. You look what happens afterwards. It says a bunch of people believe, but some of them went back and told the Pharisees, and they, made, they planned to take his life then after that. Because they said this is getting completely out of hand. Everybody, in fact, when you go into the next chapter, you find out not only are they going to take Jesus' life, they make plans to take Lazarus' life too. We've got to stop this whole thing. Why? Because the Romans are going to take away our place and our position the Romans. You're worried about the Romans. He just raised Lazarus from the dead, and all you're doing is sitting there looking at the sign. You miss what the sign's pointing at. That's why I said here, don't miss what the sign is pointing at. This is the Son of God. I am resurrection and life. Don't miss the glory. Well, applications. You cannot glorify God apart from glorifying the Son of God. And sickness is not always the result of one's own sin, but we should examine ourselves and keep our sin accounts short and then trust God, keeping our eyes fixed upon him rather than our own circumstances. Death for the believer is referred to as sleep and points to his glorious awakening on the other side. Trust God. Trust his power. Trust his will. Trust his timing. He waited two more days. There was a reason for that. Ultimately, the reason was... For God's glory so that God's Son would be glorified through it. He is never late. He sometimes delays his answer to prayer. There is a difference. Late means that something was out of your control. Delaying means that you had a purpose. There was nothing out of your control. Maybe it's to increase your faith to display his glory. And Do you believe in the Son of God? Have you stretched yourself out upon him in faith? Trusting. Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this today? Well, what a sign. An incredible, miraculous raising of Lazarus. A four days dead man. In your mind, you can see him walking out of that tomb, his eyes squinting under the cloth, wrapped around his face, Loose him and let him go, he tells them. Today, as those in the past, you saw the sign, but did you see past the sign to what it was pointing at? The glory of God as God's Son was glorified in it. He is resurrection and life. He is the life source. John said it best in the very opening verses of the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not comprehended it. And there in John 1, 14, it says, And he became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory even as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let us pray.